do not have any financial conflicts of interest to report, nor do I have any other conflicts of interest to report. Uh, the learning objectives I want to address today is to primarily review the best practices and evidence in the literature to talk about any specific clinical care pathways to minimize any potential pitfalls that may occur during care transitions, especially for elderly patients. Secondly, I would like to address a variety of techniques for communication of care transitions, including handoffs. Um, you know, there are various approaches. I've kind of just kind of summarily identified them as a very warm, kind of hot transition, a not so hot transition, and anywhere in between. Kind of understand the benefits and limitations thereof, and what may be more ideal or optimal in a certain situation or another. I'd like to begin, first of all, by going through a case study. This was an actual patient that I took care of. I will not reveal her actual name. Uh, she is a 74-year-old female patient who did have a past psychiatric history of bipolar disorder. And she was, when she uh, had been presented to us, been primarily depressed over the course of her lifetime, having had substantial kind of experience with electroconvulsive therapy treatments, uh, several dozen ECG treatments over the course of her lifetime. So this is very, very significant depression here. And she had experienced multiple care transitions over a three to six month period prior to our seeing her. Uh, we saw her at the Heater Road Clinic. Uh, this is a clinic that's kind of an embedded psychiatric clinic. It's been there for the last couple of years. Um, and I saw this patient under uh, um, the guidance and supervision of my attending, Dr. Matt Duncan. And this is um, kind of a phenomenon whereby there are more and more kind of co-located or collaborative models of care uh, where psychiatrists are kind of where the patient's primary medical home is. And in this case, this patient was kind of well-established in the kind of general internal medicine and family medicine care uh, services at Heater Road. We were asked to see this patient primarily for concerns of orientation issues and cognitive difficulty. This had manifested itself um, as um, sort of a consequence of having, due to her severe diabetes, she had had recently, you know, all five toes of her left lower extremity amputated. Then she had um, the opportunity to recover at home following the surgery here at DHMC. She was then admitted back here to DHMC following being at home for, you know, it was probably a week or two um, for severe depression, uh, concerning of suicide ideation, inability to take care of herself and the function, to get another course of ECT treatments, which had been the mainstay of her care, really, in addition to her medications. Uh, she was subsequently, following her inpatient psychiatric hospitalization, discharged to a nursing home, uh, which she lasted basically for a day. Um, for a variety of reasons, she then was transitioned from that nursing home to yet another one, um, unfortunately had to change circumstances, went back home to see if that could be accommodated, then yet went to another nursing home after that. So basically, uh, she was eventually doing well enough to be able to go back home for a more protracted period of time uh, for about you know several weeks or about a month or so, and then we were asked to kind of evaluate her more urgently at the Heater Road uh, Clinic for ongoing severe symptoms of depression. Some other noteworthy additional history, her first ECTs began in her mid-30s and they were very, very helpful for her depression, which was you know, pretty much recurrent and severe for the majority of her lifetime. The ECTs were thought to be very, very helpful until her most recent admission in July or August of 2013, where they thought um, to have been contributing to her cognitive impairment, her memory difficulties, and further disorientation. Other past medical history, in addition to the diabetes that I mentioned, which was uh, pretty uh, refractory, she has a history of hypothyroidism, hypertension, obesity, 
uh, chronic kidney disease, um, hyperlipidemia, um, underlying anxiety as well as depression. So this is a very, very medically complicated as well as psychiatrically complicated patient. Regarding family and social history, there is a significant family history of bipolar disorder, I think in at least one first degree relative. They, uh, the patient had a very, very involved and supportive family, very, very good supports and daughters who kind of live in Massachusetts um, and who take turns caring for their mother. Um, I got the opportunity in my care of her to meet, you know, basically all two or three of the daughters, plus I think a daughter-in-law who were very, very kind of, they rotated um, in the appointment. So I got a chance to meet all three or four of them. I got the chance to speak with some of them over the phone, sometimes during the appointment to kind of clarify the history and to be able to obtain better collateral data information. Of note, uh, the patient's husband himself also had significant physical health uh, difficulties, which made her kind of experience um, more difficult in that she also had to sometimes take care and was the caregiver for her husband, which, which made it very, very difficult. And you know, we always wonder about the sustainability long term for that being a, a real possibility. She was on some psychiatric medications at the time that we saw her for initial evaluation. So she actually had been on doxepin, 100 milligrams a night. Um, doxepin is a older antidepressant, a tricyclic antidepressant. Um, our concern was that she being on this might actually precipitate some of the concerns for falling at night. Uh, she had been kind of exhibiting some unsteadiness uh, in her legs, uh, partially unrelated to um, the medication, but it was just enough of a concern for us that we wanted to think about other options besides the doxepin. Uh, she had also been on Ritalin to help with energy for her. Um, this was helpful at some point uh, for her hypothyroidism. She had been on uh, levothyroxine as well, and then a variety of other medications for the other uh, medical comorbidities that I described earlier, including insulin, um, Lasix, and other medications, beta blockers. Our initial mental status exam was the following. So she was seen in a wheelchair, still continuing to recover from having uh, the amputation of her five toes. She was very depressed. Um, it was mood congruent and significantly flat affect as well. She didn't have any active suicidal or homicidal ideation, but did endorse having chronic suicidal ideation just at baseline. Um, she did not have any paranoia or delusions concerning for um, uh, auditory or video uh, or uh, visual hallucinations, and she was very attentive to the interview. Yes, please come in. Hi. We just got started. I also got a chance to do a baseline objective uh, testing examination for including the Montreal uh, cognitive testing, but before I get into that, I did kind of want to just track the severity of her depression. You know, the PHQ-9 is out of 27 points. Um, you know, nine questions, each were three points, and she, she basically scored as high as you could possibly score. Her baseline was kind of in the lower mid-20s. So this is someone who kind of at baseline has severe recurrent depression. Her generalized anxiety disorder um, uh, questionnaire, um, which is out of 21 points, was sort of in the mild, maybe mild to moderate range. So she was mostly depressed rather than anxious. Um, of note, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, which we try to just get a baseline as well, which is a test of 30 questions, um, you know, showed certain deficits, uh, deficits mainly in the delayed recall uh, domain, but I hypothesize that some of this may have actually been effort dependent and that she didn't really try as hard as maybe I thought she could have. Uh, she did have other uh, kind of deficits as noted there as well. So the question I sort of then had following review of this information is that what should we actually try to do um, for uh, this patient and what is the optimal kind of care setting for 
an individual such as this? And then moreover, what are the important points in kind of education for not only the family, uh, but the patient and other care providers are involved? So this is kind of a not, not an uncommon situation where this level of complexity arrives kind of in our uh, ambulatory clinics here at DHMC. So a couple of themes I wanted just to kind of uh, start on the get-go is that the elderly may have multiple medical cognitive and functional difficulties as in the case of our index patient here. Um, and the elderly are at particular risk for having increased use of healthcare services and may undergo multiple transitions amongst multiple services. So that's been kind of the trend, um, not only with this patient, who is a very clear example of that, but in other cases as well. There are many problems associated with the frequency of care transitions. So um, this happens in terms of having folks who have also an acute infection, a urinary tract infection, or something else, uh, pneumonia, for example, adverse effects, including primarily falls. So anything we can do to mitigate the risk of falls, I think, in the ambulatory outpatient uh, setting is, is imperative. And then just kind of episodes of chronic illnesses, exacerbations of underlying either COPD or asthma or so forth, or diabetes, and then uncontrolled pain is also a very significant problem associated with care transition. And in discussing care transitions with patients and families, it's not very difficult for them to identify and to tell us as their providers what the consequences of having poor health care transitions are. And these, you know, in a nutshell are kind of confusion and coordination of the actual plan. You know, what is the actual diagnosis? What are the actual medications? What are the actual ongoing care needs uh, that are important? You know, any type of errors that may happen during handoffs, um, and handoffs happen um, very, very frequently due to transition of staff, you know, shifts, um, which are becoming increasingly more common, but the fact that, you know, care requires uh, many, many individuals in order to be coordinated. And so any one of these communications has a potential for an error. Uh, there may be avoidable delays and frustrations uh, that may occur on any adverse medical events as well. And then basically readmissions to a prior uh, a service that was utilized in the hospital, for example, and then stress and caregiver burden, not only for family members, but also for us as providers as well. Um, not to mention uh, severe uh, mortality and morbidity as well. So specifically in the elderly population, care transitions are very, very frequent, as we've said. Uh, there are a variety of complex needs of this particular population, including polypharmacy and the morbidity, as we just mentioned. And also uh, of note, you know, folks who are able to live in the community um, you know, can be responsible for their own healthcare needs following discharge, but then the complexity of their care is not any less while they're doing that themselves. And I wanted to just bring to your attention a few alarming statistics that I think are worth mentioning. They're basically almost 17% of all nursing home residents are hospitalized within any half year period. Um, you know, that's just very, very um, shocking and, you know, nearly you know, twice that number, you know, 40% community-dwelling elderly long-term uh, care recipients are hospitalized each year. So basically, you know, you could flip a coin and, and guess as to which one might actually be hospitalized within each 12-month uh, period. And then also 40% of elderly patients receiving long-term care transfer to hospitals in the month or so prior to their deaths. And that is sometimes a very... Um, um, a controversial thing where we want folks to be able to have, you know, um, uh, a good 
um, a good death, maybe um, with palliative care as well, but at the patient level, or we're fearing that we, we could actually do something more to kind of pr prolong their lives and to kind of uh, stave off the deaths. And so this is a, a, a very surprising, I think, statistic as well. Um, care transitions, therefore, are very critical juncture, junctures in the uh, care of our patients. And it's remarkable that the care process itself can break down at any number of, uh, of points along the way. So this is sort of like a little uh, a process map, if you, if you will, about this whole process of a care transition. Uh, during preparation of the patient and the caregiver about what is expected um, of them, what is kind of the, the realistic um, goals of being able to do, what are the limitations of you know, taking care of somebody um, with home, either with VNA or in another setting. These are kind of complicated things. Um, and it's sometimes not possible for everyone to be on the same page when those important discussions um, occur. Um, also, medication reconciliation can be, uh, in some cases, a nightmare. You know, we sometimes have to look literally at the medication administrative record, the MAR, and compare it to, you know, our EDH or our EPIC-based systems just to make sure, you know, there's fidelity. And that isn't 100% guaranteed or neither is it to be taken for granted. And so I think quite a bit of um, understanding, maybe even a healthy bit of paranoia about whether the medication list is correct or not. I think um, sometimes the, the most um, wonderful thing to do is to have provider-private provider communication about the medications and ensure that what you see when you get a fast report is actually accurate and the most up-to-date information. Um, during transportation of the patient, during follow-up visits, uh, some information can be lost, especially if records come from an outside facility that is not our own. And so not only getting the release of information to the access to those records um, to protect ourselves in a medical legal manner, but to find any outside records that may be available. For example, we see this all the time in uh, patients who are seen at West Central Behavioral Health. Um, they're actually on a different medical record system, and all of our mental health notes, um, we don't have access unless we specifically go digging for them or request for them to be sent to us. Um, there may be very little information in the chart uh, for, us to, for us to be able to do a sufficient collateral uh, data information review. In addition, you know, break down any one of these points can lead to you know, errors, not only medications, but lack of um, fidelity and adherence with the care plan that was kind of come up with, or avoiding hospitalizations, um, readmissions, or any other urgent encounters. Communication is basically one of the ways to minimize and decrease the potential for errors to happen. Uh, this um, study was specifically one that worked with discharge documentation, so basically written information. But I would also like to emphasize that these kind of best practices can be done in verbal uh, handoffs and other types of communication besides just written communication. So um, specifically, this was a study to look at the consequences of poor communication during transitions. Uh, this didn't look just at uh, elderly um, folks, but I mean, I think it emphasized it due to being the, being the Journal of American Geriatric Society. And so they wanted to kind of uh, make specifically clear that poor discharge um, communication uses comprises a conflicting information or not the most accurate information or just kind of incomplete or missing information that wasn't done. You know, usually we're pretty good about kind of having discharge summaries in place before a patient actually physically leaves the hospital, but I'm not sure if that's a 100% thing all the time. It, it might be very, very high to 100%, but there may be some cases where it's not um, completely the case. Um, 
you know, but what this graph kind of shows is that, you know, at the very top, if you encountered these three kind of, you know, things that are missing, then maybe the onus is sort of on the individuals who's assuming care for the patient to find out what information isn't complete and is conflicting or which might be inaccurate. So this is sort of like a continuous process improvement uh, philosophy. You know, Toyota Production Systems has a continuous process improvement thing where they have things on assembly line and things go down a process and at any point along the way, you know, workers can speak up and say, hey, I noticed an error, you know, this needs to be fixed. But this is kind of a philosophy that needs all of us to kind of buy into, otherwise it's not gonna happen. So it's not enough for us to kind of identify that a discharge document is inaccurate or is missing information. I think it, it does become an added burden. Sometimes we may, in our busy clinics, um, not be able to find the information right away. It may take some time to ferret all of this out. But to be able to gather and seek and review this information to develop a more holistic plan of care, I think is imperative though. And then I think the authors of this particular study uh, also note that um, you know the consequence of not having the complete information is either um, not knowing and kind of assuming things either to the detriment of the patient ultimately, or you know working blindly or making assumptions, um, which can be kind of disastrous. Basically, less than stellar communication can lead to um, less than stellar outcomes, including delays in care, you know staff frustration. Um, increased workload, you know, having to find out all this information, which maybe should have been in the first place before you assume care for this patient. Um, you know, nursing home resident as well as family satisfaction, you know, and ultimately can contribute to a negative facility image for the skilled nursing facility. So I think that's what ultimately comes down to, like the reputation of the place that the patient is going to um, may, may be on the line if some of these issues aren't quite sorted out. Um, and these can have, you know, larger cultural ramifications as well. Um, Dr. Santui specifically wanted me to kind of talk about the importance of handoffs, um, and this is probably the crux of this talk. And you know, I was able to c come up um, in my literature review uh, one way of kind of making this uh, easy to remember and very germane. They just kind of used a mnemonic called "sign out," basically, and I've kind of adapted this a little bit to kind of more the geriatrics population, which I'll share in a minute. Uh, this was done um, by some researchers um, and academic uh, folks at Duke University, um, and this was recently published as well, uh, just a couple months ago. Uh, they used the monarch sign-out, um, which basically, I'll just go through it in order, um, starts with an S, um, so it's just a very generic kind of heuristic for dichotomizing which patients are sick and not sick. So basically, this is a patient who I want to tell you about. This is a very important patient who um, may either crump during your watch if this is a shift, or uh, I just want you to really be aware of kind of severe things going on. Um, patients who are not sick, however, we do have a caveat that they may actually become sick at any time, and so it's sometimes um, difficult to kind of rely on this completely if we're making a black and white kind of dichotomous uh, assumption. But nevertheless, it can bring things more salient uh, to folks in the active sign-out. Uh, the second thing is just to have brief um, kind of identifying things, you know, patient's age, uh, maybe their ethnicity, or any other specifically identifying characteristics that are very, very helpful. Um, and so the third thing then, the G is kind of a recap of their general hospital course, kind of what, it, what is it about this patient that um, they had to be hospitalized and 
uh, then come to either this long-term care facility or now, or now in your office or for whatever reason they're seeing you. Um, the G for me also can be any specific geriatrics issue, um, you know, anything that is germane in, in terms of this specific geriatric population that you would need to kind of clearly identify um, at the time of handoff. And then N could be either new events of the day or specifically for what happens at night, you know, do this or don't do this, um, what behavioral interventions are kind of to be carried out during, during the night, um, or any new things that have significantly happened to cause any change. Uh, just be aware so everyone's on the same page. Um, the O is just the overall trajectory of the patient, kind of either in prognosis or um, where things are likely or possibly going. Uh, U is upcoming events, any important, um, uh, for example, appointments that need to happen or any uh, things that need to be done on the shift, um, uh, rechecking insulin, uh, things of that nature, any tasks that need to be done. Um, and then T, again, uh, for tasks. This is kind of a redundant mnemonic, so you can do multiple things with each letter, but it's easy to remember this way. Any specific tasks that need to be completed uh, during the upcoming watch. Um, and then to save time for questions as well. Um, often handoffs are done, you know, in a very um, efficient and, and brisk manner um, because simply there's a lot of patients to talk about. There's a lot of information to be transmitted. But kind of same enough time for any unexpected questions, I think, is always a, a very nice thing to be able to do in a handoff. This um, is what I call sort of the four pillars of the continuity of care. Um, it's a lot of information, and I apologize, some of it's even hard to see, but I'll kind of just talk a little bit about each of these four pillars, um, which, I've, which I've identified. They all sort of contribute to continuity of care. This was actually done um, by some researchers and academics um, in uh, Scandinavia. And so they um, historically, I think, are, are very well known for processes of care and improvement. Um, actually, one of the folks that was one of my mentors is Dr. Uh, Paul H. Batalden, um, who um, now spent some time in Jönköping in Sweden, actually, uh, talking about um, quality improvement processes. But there's a lot of literature, I think, that comes from um, Scandinavia and those parts um, about uh, processes and healthcare systems. So the very first pillar on your left, you see that column that says primary healthcare. Uh, so this is sort of a uh, systems type view that the patient, you know, is an individual. The patient itself is is not just their chief complaint. The patient, um, you know, deserves um, service and is going to get service. It's about a service kind of delivery framework and that um, the provision of care requires collaboration between all providers within the system. And that's kind of seen from the primary healthcare system. So that's a very nice kind of way to start this diagram. Uh, the second one then, uh, where it says GP and primary medical care at the very top, uh, then goes on to show that this is kind of the relationship that the general practitioner um, has with the patient and with the system of primary medical care. So within the view of the microsystem of the individual practitioner and how that relates to primary medical care, this is sort of the view that the patient or service provider um, has prior knowledge um, of other folks taking care of the patient so that there is reliable documentation that exists. There is kind of the possibility of transitions and handoffs um, as defined earlier, and basically that um, the provision of medical care is given over time by specific people, by specific health workers, and that the focus of this is on the most adequate and optimal usage of resources. 
Um, so it's a resource allocation um, issue uh, from this pillar of continuity of care. The third one where it says consumers is actually sort of the patient-centric view, which I would dare say is probably one of the most important pillars in the continuity of care. So the patient knowing um, that the continuity of care relationship with the primary care physician um, requires also networking with other services in addition to just those services received by that primary care person. Now, the term GP here, I would kind of reinterpret to mean you know, any kind of frontline provider, you know, nurse practitioner, you know, um, licensed independent clinical social worker, you know, kind of uh, PA, anybody who has, you know, primary contact with the patient. So it doesn't have to be really strictly defined as a, as a GP, like an MD or, you know, ARMP. It can be any individual who has, you know, significant contact with being a VNA provider, you know, anybody who is able to kind of be the point of contact for this individual. And from the provider's perspective under that uh, pillar, that the patient-provider relationship itself does not constitute continuity of care. That's why there's that little squiggle line with a little line through it. That that is a very kind of simplistic um, assumption that sometimes we psychiatrists think it's all about the relationship. Um, but I think there's more to this than just about the relationship. I mean, you want to maximize your chances of having therapeutic alliance. But that in itself is probably insufficient if we're talking about the complexities of care transitions. And so, again, the focus is on relationships um, and having relationships not only with you as the primary point of contact person, but with others as well, and kind of the coordination of those relationships. And then the last column and pillar of care for continuity of care is the one labeled health policy and systems. In this kind of systems, this is an overarching kind of rubric where the patient, um, you know, doesn't have any relationship necessarily with the physicians who's doing the research in healthcare policy, right? These are folks who kind of look at outcomes as a focus, who do outcomes-based research as a whole, kind of feel quality improvement called health services research and outcomes research, um, basically to look at the overarching coordination and integration within the healthcare system. This is done on a very kind of macro level. And all of these four things needs to happen in order for continuity of care to happen very, very well. You know, if we you know, don't do as good of a job on one of these four columns, you know, basically a patient's care is compromised. And usually we think well about the primary care, um, primary health care perspective, the uh, general practitioner, the point of contact of you and the primary medical care perspective. You know, we often try to involve um, the patients and their families as consumers of their own care and try to get them on board and to um, kind of uh, facilitate that um, as much as we can. Um, but it's not always possible to see the 30,000-foot view, you know, regarding the health policy systems involved. What are the processes in place that could be better to prevent something like this from ever happening again? And so those are the questions I encourage you to think about um, um, as we continue to talk about the case that we introduced at the beginning and in your future care of uh, folks who, you know, kind of require and demand multiple kind of care transitions. So then the question... Um, uh, is back, you know, how can we really improve transitions of care? Um, a number of people have made a couple of suggestions. One is greater use of electronic medical records and health information technology. Now, that needs to be said with a caveat. So a lot of the electronic medical records are kind of being piloted at um, academic medical centers. You know, um, DHMC kind of rolled out with you know, Epic in uh, about 2010, I think, or so. And then, you know, then the question is, you know, whether these electronic medical records are used 
most efficiently, whether there's uh, fidelity between, you know, for example, medication lists um, and EMRs and the actual MAR, the medication um, administration record, or pharmacy kind of being linked to the electronic medical record as well. Um, I can tell you at some places, for example, New Hampshire Hospital, there is no, you know, linkage actually. And so uh, it really depends on the system. You know, folks are trying to streamline it and trying to make it as efficient as possible. So I do have to say that the technology can sometimes um, uh, detract from optimal patient of care if it's either not updated or it's something that people don't really trust. You know, I can tell you the number of times that, you know, for example, I see patients at some of the um, nursing homes here, we sort of really don't believe what our electronic medical record says about the medication. We just go straight to the MAR and look at what the patient has actually been given versus what's said in the computer about what the patient is supposedly taking because, you know, the MAR doesn't lie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, the caveats, I think, for electronic medical records are always uh, going to be there. Um, also, greater availability of providers uh, cannot be un uh, overemphasized. Um, there is um, a scarcity of, of geriatricians, not only geriatricians, but also geriatric uh, mental health providers, um, folks who are, you know, able to, um, you know, commit um, a, a good percentage of the time only, um, not only kind of in terms of uh, um, uh, a mental, but also, also emotional investment in the care of their patients. I think it's a very um, labor-intensive uh, job. It's a labor of love that I think uh, providers need to kind of be available to take care of patients um, in this um, manner. I'd also like to kind of just briefly mention uh, how important information education about the use of the appropriate use of advanced directives, you know, um, proxies um, and uh, do not hospitalize orders, for example. Um, these are conversations that can be very, very difficult to have and um, it's unclear exactly where the best place to start these conversations um, is. You know, should it be at the primary outpatient setting before a patient uh, gets acutely sick enough to go to the hospital? Um, should it be talked about at the hospital to prevent a readmission or discuss kind of the coordination or facilitation of plans? Um, you know, topics such as, you know, filling out advanced directives sometimes can be viewed by patients as um, doctors kind of giving up on taking care of them, you know, kind of the, the worries and anxieties, all of which are appropriate about, you know, are we throwing in a towel yet? Are we, um, what exactly are we doing by addressing um, mass directives? You know, this is kind of a cultural thing. Um, some of you may know Dr. Uh, I think Tim, Tim Leahy's work on palliative mass directive measures that he's been doing for quite some time. Um, you may also be aware of some of the work that I've done in kind of improving in, in hospital guardianship processes actually, in which we try to minimize the length of stay of patients who are staying expressly for guardianship concerns and being able to kind of decrease the number of medically unnecessary uh, days in their hospitalization. Um, so the conversation about at what point advanced directives need to be completed or assigning durable powers of attorney for healthcare and for finances, these are very, very important conversations to have. Um, you know, this can be uh, a very subtle art, um, but I think it's also very important to kind of sell it to um, patients in a way saying that, hey, you know, like, we have wills, you know, if we care enough about our resources, we should care about um, our, our medical kind of care as well. And it's, it's very easy for someone to realize the importance of having a will kind of completed preemptively, um, perhaps, you know, having a discussion about 
uh, assigning uh, mass directives um, prophylactically or something would, would be kind of equally important to our patients. Um, as well as having kind of improved and optimized geriatrics education, um, you know, geriatrics is kind of a mandatory uh, component of residence training at least, uh, but also should be kind of emphasized for continuing medical education endeavors uh, for providers and staff of, of all sorts. Um, and last uh, but not least, it's a very interdisciplinary approach. It requires kind of folks from every single specialty, you know, the PCPs to the, um, the mental health providers to the chaplains, um, spiritual care, palliative care, everyone else. And finally, you know, this is all about the, um, the nursing home residents and about those who we are in the process of transitioning. You know, how to make it kind of center around them specifically is probably the most important goal of all of this that we're talking about. So in terms of improvements to transitional care, um, there are a couple of things that people have tried before. This is actually very interesting stuff. I haven't um, done a lot of research into this, but there's some models about actually uh, improving what care um, is like for nursing home residents. One of this is the wonderful thing called the Eden Alternative, which kind of uh, makes a very home-like environment for the nursing home residents. Uh, includes, you know, pets, plants, greenery, you know, um, you know really cute dogs, therapy dogs, um, <laughs> wonderful things like that. I had the um, pleasure to work at one absolutely. in Texas, and it was. Oh, wow. Just an, a, a very different experience yeah. from what we've had in New England. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like you know a very kind of enlightened way of doing things. And I, I certainly hope that these models are, are more commonly replicated elsewhere besides just in Texas. But I, I hope someday we'll have something like that closer to home here as well, because um, I, I believe in kind of this wonderful kind of way of taking care of people. Um, similar to that is you know a greenhouse model, and then another model called the Wellstring model. Uh, basically, all of these models are very similar in kind of, um, you know, making more familiar, more kind of friendly uh, the environment, uh, the physical built-in environment for uh, the nursing home residents in which they live. And they also um, kind of uh, encourage the long-term care providers to get together and become really uh, an oversight board, basically. all collaborate with each other. Everyone's in the loop. Everyone has kind of the same goals. Everyone has you know, similar cultural agendas about um, causing these home-like characteristics to you know, do wonders. I bet you know delirium is is decreased as a result of this. You know, patient um, unrest and agitation and even sundowning are probably decreased as a result of these wonderful kind of environmental modifications. Um, so I think these are very positive things to do. Um, the references for this um, are below, and you know, I'm we're also happy to distribute the slides, the slides which are available uh, for any one of these um, uh, objectives and models if you're interested in finding out more information. Um, you know, here at uh, Dartmouth Hitchcock, we also have the wonderful Aging Resource Center. You know, we have um, all these programs. I recently got a chance to flip through the brochure, and you know, it's very, very professionally done. It's colorful. It's beautiful. Um, there's something you could do basically on every single day. I mean, it's a very kind of structured program, which I think is a wonderful source of information. Um, you know, of course, we have Dr. Santulli's uh, memory handbook, um, now in, I think, at least its fourth, maybe fifth edition or so, and the Centers for Health and Aging, um, obviously the, the sponsors of uh, this talk as well. Um, I'd like to also just mention real briefly that caregiver support is imperative in all of this if we are to succeed. Um, you know, studies really do show that caregivers who provide um, 21 more 
or so hours of care per week are most likely to report symptoms of burnout, uh, for example, worsening health, as opposed to those who provide um, fewer than 20 hours a week. You know, anything over, obviously, 20 hours a week is basically considered at least a half-time job, if not more. I mean, that is a very, very significant amount of time that's spent taking care of um, folks. Um, in addition, folks who provide uh, more than 20 or so hours of care um, are likely to be older than 60, are likely to be female, um, are likely to be retired, um, also are more likely to be involved in longer time frames for caring for these individuals, um, also uh, more commonly that they live with the person that they actually care for as well, and also uh, they're slightly more to have a physical limitation um, such as requiring a wheelchair or um, <coughs> using a cane or walker because of either toe amputations or whatever than those providing um, less care. And you know, it goes without mentioning that longer periods of care are also associated with greater levels of stress and a higher prevalence of depression for the caregivers themselves. Um, you know, Dr. Santula in our mood disorders uh, and memory clinic, we always kind of independently interview the caregivers so as to sort of assess with understanding their caregiver burden um, over time, because that can often you know, make a huge difference in deciding what kind of care plan or when the threshold might be met for alternative living uh, um, kind of arrangements to be made, such as skilled nursing facilities. I wanted to also just briefly mention some predictors of community discharge. So that's defined as discharge from nursing home to home uh, by, by three months. And basically, things that increase the odds of being able to do that are basically, number one, far and away, the most important thing is to have a support person who is positive to the discharge. And so you can see a 381% greater odds on just that one kind of characteristic. Other things, you know, more in the you know 40 or 50 percent greater odds category are any type of behavioral issues such as agitation or just um, um, you know anxiety, things that kind of get in the way of uh, uh, a placement. And then any preference to return the community, um, skills training, and then other kind of factors that were noteworthy, um, either cancer, uh, being married, being female, or being able to take responsibility for one's own decisions. And things that decrease the odds of discharge, so basically um, acute kind of changes within three months, uh, so 81% lesser odds, and then um, varying other things, you know, being admitted from another facility, uh, you know, uh, incontinence is a very big deal, and so um, that goes without mentioning. And then mild or moderate cognitive impairment is also um, uh, of note there. Um, and then some other things like cognitive impairments, uh, falls with the last um, you know, half a year or so, and other functional impairments as well. Um, if the goal is to uh, send patients um, from the long-term care facility to home with home health, then uh, this can be a reasonable goal. Um, it can be a complex situation uh, depending on the caregiver situation. Um, and if this is to happen successfully, then usually having a smooth transition is imperative as happening. So, example, having a very, very updated medical medication list, um, you know, even directions to the VNA folks for exactly how to get to the patient's home. I can't tell you how important that one step is in getting to the right place. Uh, it can be very, very hard to find where people actually live, um, especially in our more kind of rural community here. Um, 
and getting information from folks that are coming from outside our hospital system, for example, the records issue, you know, past care um, of mental health, if records are actually West Central and not within our EDH system, that can kind of make things more difficult. So getting the right information can be very difficult to do. Um, so I just kind of wanted to basically go back to our uh, case study uh, before wrapping up and taking uh, time for some questions. So we initially um, had the patient uh, resume VNA services because that was very, very helpful for helping them. Um, we also decided to present this patient at a weekly geriatrics case conference meeting on Fridays at noon uh, that Dr. Santuli, uh, Dr. Dan Bateman, Dr. Um, Heather Gad, um, sometimes folks like uh, Dr. Steve Bartels will also come and we'll just go over cases and review them basically. Um, at one of these case conferences, we decided immediately not to kind of return to ECTs due to continued concern of potential contribution to cognitive impairment. And eventually, uh, we decided that due to the risk of falling, we wanted to transition the doxepin, a tricyclic antidepressant, uh, to the combination of effects or Remeron, which is less associated with um, falling. Um, so these are just kind of different uh, mechanistic agents to kind of help prevent falls. Um, the patient has uh, continued to be very, very depressed, and you know we have, you know, from time to time considered elective inpatient psychiatric hospitalization to restart ECTs. Um, however, the family sort of had uh, a powwow and really thought that having ECTs wouldn't solve the real core psychological issues that were going on. Primarily, is that this patient is at the um, kind of late Ericksonian stage of ego integrity versus despair kind of realizing that there are changes in life circumstances like we have to take care of her husband that are much more difficult to do, you know, um, tied to, you know, the history and emotional connection and attachments to their home that they've been living in for such a long time, and also the limitations of their daughter's involvement from afar, uh, from driving uh, to Massachusetts. So initially, um, one of the daughters would drive up, you know, two or three times a week, sometimes would stay for two or three days, and then drive back, and so appointments, um, were ideally on, on Mon uh, Wednesday mornings uh, when she could actually take time out of her, her schedule to actually make the appointments. And so we we're kind of limited on the logistics. Um, more recently, though, um, we have um, noticed some improvement with the patient. Her PHP 9 scores have actually decreased to about 11 or 12, which is actually the lowest um, they've been uh, reported. Um, you'll note that at the beginning of this case, her PHP 9 was actually 26. And so it came down substantially. Uh, but the patient isn't aware necessarily that these changes are occurring. But everyone around her is noticing, oh, mom, I think you're doing it better. You're smiling more. Um, things are kind of a little bit smoother. But um, as I always say in psychiatry, you may be the last person to kind of observe um, improvement. Uh, but those around you may be quicker to pick it up. Uh, and so she's overall improving um, here from a standpoint. So far, she's been able to avoid a rehospitalization. I mean, she still is living at home, um, but you know, hopefully that will be able to continue for uh, for quite some time. Um, in summary, uh, you know, it's a very frequent event for care transitions to occur in the elderly population. Uh, in the elderly population, uh, it's a critical time for documentation. You know, they say in healthcare, you know, good documentation is good medicine, and without good uh, documentation, you know, sometimes we don't even remember what we, we did for the patient. And so it's a crucial time, especially. Um, in transition of care from one provider to another. Um, that mnemonic, um, the sign-up mnemonic, I think it'd be helpful um, just as a very basic kind of takeaway message uh, from today. And then, you know, as I showed that kind of four-pillar approach uh, to the background of 
um, continuity of care, you know, systematic approaches can improve quality communication and documentation um, associated with facility of care transitions. Um, at Duke, where they did the resident kind of um, assessment of the sign out, they're able to show kind of decreased um, um, not only anxiety in the residents' own kind of sign out, but that it was just um, um, more enjoyable process for the handouts and you know less things were missed, less questions, you know, fewer kind of inconsistencies and kind of other um, concerns. Um, so at this time, I'm happy to take any questions and discussion, and thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Are you doing LPMR? Yes. Yeah. I um, just finished my preventive medicine uh, residency in uh, 2013. Mm -hmm. um, my project actually was on um, improving guardianship processes here in the hospital. Um, um, some of you may be familiar with this project. Some of you uh, may not be. Basically, we looked at a two and a half year time period. Um, to see what the reasons for folks staying um, in the hospital after they had had their acute medical care needs met. Um, you know, as you know, guardianship is a is a process both internal and external DHMC. It involves the legal system, the courts, um, mm -hmm. going to judges for the probates and stuff. And so the preventive medicine residency allowed me to kind of improve care coordination and communication amongst the various systems. Mm -hmm. um, so we were able to decrease uh, the average length of stay of medically necessary days by uh, greater than 16 days. And so that um, amounts to, you know, over 500 uh, um, days a year. Uh, potentially, um, you know, we could generate um, more than $1.2 million as a result of other kind of billable procedures mm -hmm. taking those beds instead of having here, which is not good for their own yeah. health in terms of, um, you know, complications that could occur, UTIs, fall risks, yeah. and so forth. And that's one of the things we kind of worked on in the project. What are your thoughts and recommendations for our ambulatory clinics on assigning a designated person to follow some of the transitions and help sure. at the different levels sure. of care? Like, for example, the patient that you used as your index patient. Right. It's so a great, with it. great question. For something like um, that. It's sort of a full-time job managing folks transitioning to care. Um, at Heater Road, they've had a behavioral health clinician kind of follow up with patients and kind of work on limited problem-solving therapy strategies, um, but that can be time-intensive. Um, you know, I do believe that we should have folks who are dedicated to making kind of discharge plan follow-up phone calls um, at the very bare minimum. You know, they do this on inpatient services here to have a, you know, a gold standard of having calls within 72 hours of discharge, for example, to follow up on plans and stuff. Um, it literally could be a full-time job for somebody to kind of manage um, very complicated cases such as the one I presented. Um, you know, sometimes it takes uh, the team of the residents and the PCP, um, or I've worked with um, lots of PAs and APRNs about kind of who is in the best position to manage this, because sometimes things happen and, and maybe one or two of the providers may know, but not all the providers mm -hmm. may know. Um, but I think greater transparency, the EDH EPIC system makes it more possible to do this, but I think it literally could be a full-time job of, say, a, um, uh, a social worker, absolutely. It could be a social worker's um, full-time gig, actually, to do some of this, um, but in close kind of, um, supervision consultation with the rest of the care team. I mean, I, I'm not sure what the most optimal way of doing this is. I'm happy to hear any thoughts about that process. I just want to make sure that um, there aren't others, other mm -hmm. questions. Are there other questions coming from the, just wave your hand and 
Unmute your mic. Uh, just one thing that I noticed on one of your slides, um, uh, you had mentioned, um, or, or on the slide it was uh, in terms of what are some of the uh, factors involved in um, it causing issues with, with transition, and one of them was Medicaid per diem. Sure. Um, and does that mean that if somebody's bed is being held at a facility because they're on Medicaid and there's only a limited number of bed, uh, t days, that there's kind of a rush to get them back in there? Is I think it has something to do with that. The external pressures based mm -hmm. on our reimbursement system often force our hand at making the best decision. So I know, for example, um, um, for the guardianship patients, you know, we are um, sometimes have our hands tied behind our back because we are only able to get certain things reimbursed um, for this period of time. Sometimes a bed becomes available, but then it's quickly then yeah. off off availability and so okay. you know we're kind of in the situation where we want to jump on the best available opportunity yeah. but other things make it less likely of a desirable opportunity um, so I think the reimbursement issues which I didn't even get into are very very complicated I don't pretend to understand half of them right. but I think it may have something to do with that the yeah. level of reimbursement or the um, level of expected kind of duration of care um, something along those lines I think. Yeah. So the potato wagging the dog. Yeah, <laughs> Are you working with John Bushnish at all? Um, no, I haven't actually. He'd probably like to. He's doing LPMR now. Sure. He's working on transitions from hospital to um, nursing home. Oh, great. Specifically, Hanover Terrace. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, I'll be happy to speak with John. Yeah, I think I've talked with him very briefly, but um, I'm just a current first year LPMR designate. Mm -hmm. so. I'll definitely have it. This is being recorded. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Any other questions, comments about anything? Well, thank you very much for having me. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. It's a pleasure.